Tonight on Talking Politics, this year's race for governor doubles as a referendum on what it means to be a Republican in Massachusetts right now. In a few minutes, we'll talk with GOP governor candidate Chris Doty and his new running mate, Kate Campanelli, about their take and their vision for the state. But first, even though COVID numbers are down and restrictions aimed at mitigating the impact are being lifted across Massachusetts, the political flashpoints created by the pandemic aren't fading away just yet. After weeks of protests outside her Roslindale home, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is moving to limit demonstrations that target specific individuals or residences, filing an ordinance to ban them between the hours of 9 p.m. and 9 a.m. She says it's a way to balance First Amendment rights with important quality of life concerns. We can ensure that neighborhoods across the city, whether or not there are hot-button issues being discussed in City Hall or at the State House that people can still enjoy their homes, live their lives, and not have to experience a daily assault of noise right at 7 a.m. Or, or into the night. The Boston City Council now has 60 days to approve or reject Wu's proposal, which could also kick in if the council takes no action. Meanwhile, the Massachusetts State House is once again open to the public after being closed for almost two years. To get in, you have to show proof of vaccination or a recent negative COVID test. But this week, some of the same people who've been protesting outside Wu's home tried to get in without meeting those requirements, and two of them were arrested. Now, if you don't have a problem with mask or vaccine mandates, you might see this pushback as representing a small group of disgruntled outliers. But in a recent Boston City Council hearing, Michael Flaherty, who finished first in last fall's at-large election, voiced sharp frustration with how the Boston Public Health Commission has gone about its business during the pandemic. Do any of these board members own a business? Are they responsible for payroll and insurance? Um, are they giving any thought to the small business person or the, the, the blue-collar worker at home? Okay? I just don't know what was going through folks' heads. 111, Chapter 111 gives you broad-based powers in a pandemic, but no one says, hey, we gotta, we got to meet weekly. This, this is some serious business. Hey, we're in a pandemic. we got to meet. Instead, it's you're meeting every other month. i got to tell you, I've, I, I have zero confidence. All of which suggests that in Boston and other municipalities, the political implications of the pandemic could be unfolding for a while, even as life in general gets back to normal, hopefully. Joining me to look at what that could mean and to dig into some other big developments from the week are my colleague Mike Dean, GBH News' State House correspondent, and Yawu Miller, senior editor at the Bay State Banner. Good to see both of you. Yawu, uh, do you think that we are seeing the emergence of a lasting fault line in Boston city politics right now? I think what we're seeing is a, an existing fault line that maybe the outlines of which are becoming a little more clear. Um, I think both uh, well, Flaherty, uh, Aaron Murphy, Frank Baker, who were you know in that hearing, sort of leading things. Um, you know, they all rely on votes from precincts where firefighters and police officers, um, you know, are are, are in are, you know great abundance. And you see those precincts in parts of West Roxbury and parts of Dorchester, parts of South Boston. They all did quite well there. Michelle Wu did not. Um, also who did well there, though, is uh, Anissa Asabi-George. But in the final analysis, she just came out with about 35% of the vote. So, um, you know, it, the fault lines are there, but I don't think it's a big political concern for Wu. 
Okay. In the long run. Uh, Mike, at the State House, my impression from outside the building has been that during the pandemic, most of the pushback the governor's gotten has been from people who don't think he's doing enough when it comes to various mandates or restrictions. Is there anything comparable to what we're seeing in the Boston City Council right now brewing at the State House? Uh, in short answer, no. <laughs> um, the legislature does have an oversight a committee that's been established to kind of keep tabs on what the Baker administration is doing while handling this, but they haven't really taken too much action. Uh, aside from funding issues, when uh, the legislature kind of uh, snapped away all of that uh, federal ARPA funding from Baker to do their own budgeting with it, there hasn't really been too much legislative action where lawmakers are saying the Department of Public Health needs to act this way. Um, generally, lawmakers have been very comfortable with allowing Baker to do what he's going to do. I think that maybe having a Republican in that executive seat um, kind of is a little bit similar to what uh, Councillor Flaherty was talking about, is that Baker uh, does have those business interests in mind. It's not completely a public health or you know school-focused message. Baker has been kind of at the forefront of getting, uh, get, ending these ma mandates, getting businesses back. Um, it is really more of a conservative Republican approach that he's taken. Um, so you're right, lawmakers are, if anything, liberal lawmakers are saying that we need to slow down, be more cautious, but the legislature itself has not acted, and I, I doubt they're going to step in now. And of course, as a lot of our viewers know, the Republican presence in the legislature is minimal. They, they don't have a lot of people there to speak up. Yawu, you've said on this show before that you think, um, despite a recent legal setback, that Mayor Wu is winning the fight over vaccination mandates. Do you still feel that way? Well. You know, obviously, the, there's been setbacks with the vac with the mandates themselves. I think just as far as her response to COVID goes, I mean, she held the line on you know uh, safety measures that many people thought were important um, and during a time when the Omicron surge was you know the high we had the highest uh, infection rate that we'd ever had uh, during this pandemic. So she held the line. Um, you know, there, you know, she obviously uh, suffered some setbacks, but um, you know, I do think that it's noteworthy that you know, a majority of firefighters are vaccinated, a majority of police officers are vaccinated, a majority of Boston residents support um, vaccination and vaccine mandates. So I think she's you know politically safe. Uh, Mike, the Boston City Council backed a proposal by Mayor Wu this week to implement a new tax on high-end real estate transfers. By high-end, I mean over $2 million. I believe it's 2%. Uh, there'd be a new taxation of 2% on those with the money used to fund affordable housing in the city of Boston. Now it goes to the legislature, which has to sign on and then either uh, get the governor to agree or override a gubernatorial veto. Uh, Governor Baker said on Boston Public Radio this week that he's skeptical of the mayor's proposal. Where do you see it going from here? I, this is kind of similar. It might very well go the same place that it's gone the last couple of sessions, which is absolutely nowhere in the legislature. Uh, what's different now, uh, of course, is that the players have changed. New Speaker Ron Mariano is uh, running the House. 
and Michelle Wu is now the mayor of Boston. Does that mean that she's going to get the ball further down the field than Mayor Marty Walsh did? Uh, I don't know. Walsh was a, a man of the house. He came out of there, had a good relationship with uh, former Speaker Robert DeLeo, and it still didn't really matter <laughs> getting that transfer tax through the, the kind of lengthy home rule petition process that Boston bills need to go through to get state approval to put them into play. Um, the, well, the other side of that thing that has changed is that the housing crisis has definitely evolved and changed. And this is something that um, maybe will add a little bit of urgency to this issue. But um, it's one of those things that we really are watching of Wu's agenda. Uh, how does she do getting her priorities on the MBTA through state agencies and through the legislature? How does Wu do on housing? How is Wu going to get her, you know, her desires on, um, you know, rent control? through a similar process. She has a very ambitious legislative agenda uh, with a legislature that probably doesn't have a, much of an appetite to take too much of it on, at least in her first term. And tell me if I'm right uh, to, to draw a distinction here. When she has moved to increase free bus service in the city, which obviously is a tiny step toward her dream of a free tea, there uh, she's using, or Boston's gonna be using, federal funds, federal relief funds linked to COVID to make that happen. What she wants to do here is create a mechanism that doesn't rely on one-time funding, which is what the governor has said could be used to beef up affordable housing. So this is mm -hmm. not to make it overly dramatic, but this is a test case for her ability to make long-lasting change or as opposed to change that's dependent on a, a finite revenue stream. Is that fair? Yeah, that is a good way of putting it. And this is why Wu got elected in part. Uh, the voters of Boston wanted this kind of big institutional change, you know, a uh, sea change in how housing uh, works right here. But the real estate lobby is very powerful. The developing lo developer lobby is very powerful and landlords are very powerful. Real estate is just uh, very entrenched on Beacon Hill. And to allow Boston to do something when the rest of the state, which is dominated by the suburbs and those suburban lawmakers, uh, it is going to be very difficult to get something like that through. Yabu, the mayor unveiled this week her vision for, or her framework, I should say, for selecting the next superintendent of the Boston Public Schools, whoever's going to re uh, replace Brenda Caselius after she leaves this year. Is the mayor taking pretty much the same sort of approach that her predecessors have as they've gone to look for new BPS superintendents, or is she doing something different? I think what's different is the context. Um, Walsh had two searches, and in both instances, he had an interim in place. So you know, he, could, he could take you know, a little longer. It wasn't like a, 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 a you know, we're going to have somebody new by such and such a time. Um, there's that. Also, Walsh came in with a chief of education, uh, Ron Dorsey, who came from the Barr Foundation. Um, you had a sense of what Walsh's educational philosophy is. Um, Bar Foundation supports, uh, you know, education reform, corporate education reform uh, measures, um, and Walsh early on seemed to be supportive of, of uh, you know, that same sort of philosophy. Wu has, to my knowledge, not yet articulated what her philosophy around education is. So, um, you know, be very interesting to see who what candidates emerge and you know to see to what extent her office is sort of pushing any one candidate or supporting any one candidate. Uh, Mike, a closing question for you. The Mass GOP has a, a new raft of candidates. They already had some people who are going to be running statewide this year, but this week we learned that Jay McMahon is going to be running for attorney general, something he's done before. Anthony Amore is going to be running for state auditor. 
And Kate Campanelli, who we're going to be talking with along with Chris Doty in the next segment, is going to be running for lieutenant governor as Chris Doty's running mate, even though they're elected separately. Uh, of this new group of Mass GOP candidates, is there anyone you look at and, and say, oh, this actually is a great get for the party as they try to make some inroads on Beacon Hill, which is dominated by Democrats? Yeah, I would say just the fact that some of these moderates, like Amore uh, Doughty, are getting involved in what will be a, a pretty Trump-centric uh, primary race, if there are more candidates that enter, is a sign that the party is still attracting kind of moderates that could have a chance of winning a general election. Um, you know, when you look at that slate of folks, it really does run the gamut uh, of, of, you know, moderate Charlie Baker-style Republicans towards a more radical Trump-oriented Republican. Um, that's kind of what we have here in Massachusetts. So people like Amore, who uh, have run before, have run uh, pretty, you know, legitimate campaigns uh, in the more of a Baker mold. And then uh, McMahon, who of course has run before, but far more of a, a radical conservative take on things um, that shows kind of the, the clash within the party and the separation they have there. You'll notice that uh, uh, McMahon is the only one that got the full-throated backing of the mass GOP, which of course is a, a Trump-centric organization at this point. Um, but if they're going to be have competitive primaries, uh, especially in that gubernatorial race between uh, Doughty and Jeff Deal, uh, we'll, we'll see that split coming down at the polls. Can these moderates win, though? I don't know. <laughs> All right, Mike Dean, Yahoo Miller, thank you both. Next up, when former state Senator Jeff Deal launched a run for governor last July, he made a pitch that struck many political observers as counterintuitive. Despite incumbent Republican Charlie Baker's consistently high approval ratings, Baker's approach, according to Deal, was wrong for the mass GOP. In an ad titled Stabbed in the Back, Deal took aim at Baker's vaccination requirement for public-facing state employees. He's changed the game and has a new set of rules. Governor Baker has ordered 44,000 state workers, including troopers, to show proof of vaccination or risk losing their jobs. Since the October 17th deadline, Baker has been firing workers and is refusing to negotiate with the state police. When Baker announced in December that he wouldn't seek a third term, it seemed like Deal might have the Republican nomination locked up. But then, about a month ago, businessman Chris Doty joined the fray while striking a very different tone. With the right team, a little creativity, and a willingness to work hard, just about any problem can be solved. This is the same work ethic and teamwork I will bring as your governor. And now, even though candidates for governor and lieutenant governor are selected separately, Doty has a running mate, former state rep Kate Campanelli, who announced her bid for LG this week. And Chris Doty and Kate Campanelli join me now. Thank you both for being here. And I have to ask, do, is this the first uh, media appearance you guys have made together? Because if so, we want to you know, take note of that. Yes, okay. it is. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here to do it. Kate, uh, let me start with you. There are, as we just mentioned, two candidates in the governor's mm -hmm. race seeking the Republican nomination. Why did you decide that you wanted to team up with Chris as opposed to going it alone or teaming up with Jeff Deal? You know, I, I think this is a great opportunity. When Chris asked me to be his running mate, you know, um, we had had many conversations before, and Chris is just a man of incredible character, and he has this genuine compassion uh, to make a great governor for Massachusetts. You know, I think he has a great background of 
his leadership in business of cre actually creating jobs here in Massachusetts, especially in the manufacturing industry. And with my experience in the legislature, I think we can combine and complement each other very well. Chris, let me flip the question and ask you, why did you want to run with Kate? Well, you know, I think there's three things that citizens look for in a public servant, um, and so did I. Uh, one was to be a people person. And if you meet Kate, it'll take you about three seconds to see that she is genuine, she's honest, and she has the, um, the, the goodwill of the people in her heart. Um, the second one is a, a strong work ethic. This is uh, these campaigns and serving as a governor and a lieutenant governor is a tremendous amount of work. And I needed someone that was gonna work uh, as much as I've been working. And uh, the third one is bright. Uh, a lieutenant governor and a governor have to make hundreds of decisions every day, both small and big. They have to understand the legislation, legal documents, budgets, finance, and Kate's background fit all of those. Uh, Chris, when you kicked off your campaign, you described yourself in a couple interviews as a political moderate. I'm wondering what that term means to you. What, what does it mean uh, when you say that you are a political moderate? Yeah, you know, people have wanted to put labels on me like that from day one. Um, you Wait, know, hold I, on. Did I thought you put your? Didn't you put that label on yourself? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't remember saying you, that I was a moderate. I think what I was saying oh, is oh, that. Oh, interesting. Okay, so is that not how you describe yourself? I want to make sure I get this right. Yeah, I would describe myself as my own man. I, you know, I come from the manufacturing background. I don't come from a skyscraper in the. Um, I don't come from a skyscraper in Boston. I come from a manufacturing background. I've been working with uh, working families my whole life. And uh, I have my own views and my own perspectives in life. So I would say that I'm a Chris Doty Republican. Okay, uh, I'll need to go back and figure out how I made the mistake. I thought you had described yourself as a moderate. Uh, Kate, I won't attribute a label to you, but let me ask you, is there, other than perhaps Chris Doty Republican or Kate Campanelli Republican, is there a label that you think describes your approach to politics and your beliefs? You know, I have my own record in the legislature and I'm proud of that. I stand by my votes. Uh, but, you know, I think in this in this day, most people aren't looking at labels. They were looking at a leader who can lead us in, in Massachusetts. And we're looking to put Massachusetts first. And that's what we want our label to be. Uh, let me ask you, I want to I talk to you guys about um, what you would have done faced with some of the decisions Governor Baker made. But Kate, you brought up your votes, saying that you stand by your votes. I want to ask you about the press release the Democratic Governors Association put out right after you got in the race, saying that back in, I believe, 2018, you were one of 14 state representatives to vote against a ban on conversion therapy to try to make gays and lesbians straight. Uh, why did you make that vote in particular? Well, first to, to address the attack, I, I think it's a compliment for, for Chris and I that we are shown as the front runners here in this race. But I stand by that vote. That vote actually takes away the therapist's ability to ask questions. You know, part of therapy is to dig deep, to ask questions. And this bill prevented that from happening. Uh, my guess is that we will have several viewers, a number of viewers saying, well, but conversion therapy is also premised on the idea that if you're gay or lesbian, 
you need to be fixed. You're not really that. That's not an acceptable thing to be. So we need to change you. Is that what you believe? No, no. I believe in getting the right therapy that's needed. And, and again, being able to be open with your therapist and have deep conversations that challenge you. And I think this prevents that. It, it muted the therapist's ability to be able to be open and challenge their patients. Okay, let's talk about uh, some of the experiences that we've been through over the past two years in the course of the pandemic. As we noted in the introduction, Jeff Deal, Chris, your opponent, has been very critical of some of the decisions that Governor Baker has made. We showed part of an ad in which Deal went hard after Baker's decision to implement a vaccine mandate for public-facing employees. I want to start with that. Is that something that you think was the right move for the governor to have made or the wrong move? Well, you know, Jeff has never been in an executive role. Um, and I have, and so has Governor Baker. We've both been executives. And um, I remember when COVID first hit, I had uh, 300 employees right here in Massachusetts. And I have to admit, it took my breath away. I, I didn't know what was going to happen to that employee and to their family and, and uh, their parents that lived with them. Um, I think executives and senior uh, policymakers have done the best they could with the information they had. If you remember how the information came, it came over time. We started to learn things as thing, things went along. And so I think we look to our governors and our policymakers to, to make the best decisions they can with the information they have at the time. So I'm not in a place to criticize those. And I hope those that uh, worked for me didn't criticize me as I tried to do my very best to roll it out. I know that you two don't want to look backward too much, so I want to look forward. But I'm hoping that we do not have another COVID wave. I'm sure that you feel the same and everyone watching feels yes. the same. But if we were to, and Chris, if you were in the corner office in, say, early 2023, when we got some new variant, would you uh, implement a vaccine mandate for public-facing employees? You know, I, I don't like the word mandate. Uh, I would start, in my business, I started with education. You know, let's teach everyone uh, the advantages of vaccines. Um, and, and then let's, let's encourage compassion for other people. That's what we did at our business. We just talked a lot about being compassionate to those that have children and those that have senior citizens in their home and in their life. And guess what? Every employee, almost every employee, uh, had a desire to be compassionate. Uh, Jeff Deal has also indicated frequently that he thinks masking kids in schools was the wrong thing to do during the pandemic. Where do you stand on that? You know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the role of government is to protect citizens and not to rule their lives. Um, and at first, I think our government's intent was to protect citizens. And I really think the policymakers were doing the best they could to make sure citizens were protected. It did begin to feel to me over time that it began to feel more controlling, particularly when kids were playing basketball and wrestling and they're wearing masks and the vaccines were largely rolled out. And the science was now pretty clear about children and, and uh, COVID. So it, it did, at one point it began to shift in my mind from being protection to control. And so, you know, I think we've all done the best we could to sort of to, to put this behind us, put us in the rearview mirror. But I, there is a certain amount of common sense you have to apply in these situations to know when you're moving from, you know, protection to control. 
Kate, let me ask you, you'd be working in concert with Chris if you guys were to make it uh, to the State House. What are some of the big ideas you have or big priorities you have that you'd like to see Massachusetts pursue in the coming years? Sure. I, you know, Chris and I are focused on the quality of life here in Massachusetts. And we're focused on, you know, in many ways, getting back to the basics. I think that means affordability, getting a great education for our, our kids, our students here, and also, you know, improving the economy in so many ways that we can get people back to work. Let me ask you about one of those points, because our time is starting to run out. Affordability, what can the state do, what should the state do to make housing in particular more affordable? Because I think that's an issue that across the political spectrum people are deeply concerned about. Yeah, we're seeing that everywhere we're going, we're, we're talking across the state, and this is something that resonates with all voters. The affordability, filling up your gas tank goes from you know, $30 a year ago to over $60 today uh, from commuting to people who use their, uh, have to go back and forth to work. You know, the price of groceries has gone up and as you mentioned, housing as well. So these are issues that are really affecting Massachusetts residents. And Chris, I know you have some, uh, you're probably chomping at the bit to get in here. <laughs> I am, I have some, some very clear thoughts on this and my background is very fitting in this area. I talked to a real estate developer about affordable housing and what he said was, and, and I'll need some fact checked on this, that from the beginning to when affordable housing is built takes about four to five years, sometimes six years in Massachusetts, whereas the construction might be 18 months. That means the majority of it is what we call in the manufacturing world, non-value added paperwork. Um, I've spent my whole career taking things that are non-value added and reducing them. As a governor, I would say this, I would say if it takes 18 months to build affordable housing, my goal is to get the non-value added portion down to 18 months, simplify, reduce, reduce the paperwork. In manufacturing, we do this all day long. I've built a career on simplifying and reducing things like regulation and paperwork and all of those things. When we reduce the time down, the volume can increase which is what you have in supply chains. It's the same problems. Mm -hmm. Okay, I wanna ask you both um, quickly before we wrap up, okay. one, of the, one of the big divides right now in American politics is how people feel about the last presidential election. Uh, and I'd like to hear each of you weigh in on whether you think that the election was legitimate or conversely, uh, as many Republicans believe, was stolen from President Trump. Chris, let me start with you. It was legitimate. Okay, quick. Kate, how about you? Okay, uh, same. Same, okay. I, I, do. I apologize, go ahead. Okay, no, uh, just focusing on, on this election, I don't think we need to look back at the past. It's not about Donald Trump or Joe Biden, Charlie Baker. It's about what Chris and I are going to do with the state that's handed to us. Okay, well, I look forward to hearing more about that, mm -hmm. maybe catching you guys on the campaign trail as well. In the interim, Chris Doty and Kate Campanelli, thank you both. That's it for tonight. As always, thank you for making time to join us. And I just want to note that in the Boston Globe, in a January 26th article, Doty was quoted as saying, when I saw that Governor Baker wasn't getting back in and I didn't see any other moderate Republicans, my wife said, hey, quit complaining about it. Take a courage pill and step out on the stage. So take that as you will. And please keep the feedback coming. Once again, the email is talkingpolitics at wgbh.org. The website is gbhnews.org slash talkingpolitics. Or you can find me on Twitter. 
I'm at Riley Adam. Do come back next week. Soraya Wintersmith, GBH News' City Hall Bureau Chief, will host what should be a fascinating show focused on how reparations might work in Boston. Until then, thanks again and good night.